there are extra blessings for those who show up on the first Sunday of spring break and on daylight savings time thing. Extra crazy blessings. And we need to make a commitment not to snicker at anybody that walks in at 11. <laughs> we'll just kind of, morning, we'll carry on in the throes of the message at that point. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Scott uh, started us in song and then prayer, and I'm going to continue in prayer before we climb into the word this morning. Um, I'm thankful for what Scott prayed for. He prayed for understanding. The Holy Spirit would give us understanding. As I'm looking at a sermon like this, I'll tell you right now, it's daunting uh, because it's not, uh, it's not the kind of fare that I'm, I was accustomed to for most of my uh, time in church. It's funny, I had a conversation with somebody. Christy and I were invited to a little function Friday night out at um, Club Lake, and we were talking with someone there, and they said, you know, we really want to come to your church, but we heard that you preach for like an hour, and we just, I mean, you know, 20 minutes is about all we got, you know, so I understand that, so I hope if you're visiting this morning that you can go the distance with us. If you're a regular, then it's, it's probably regular, um, regular fare, but uh, it may be a little heavy if you're accustomed to a, a lighter meal, and I'm not um, criticizing a lighter fare. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to say, because sometimes lighter fare is, is perfectly in order, so... Let's start in prayer, and then we'll climb into our passage. <clears throat> Lord, this morning, I want to lift up another brother and his uh, family and the church that he pastors, Greg Fields. I'm just so thankful for Greg as a friend, as a counselor, as a fellow pastor in our community. I just um, have been so blessed by his worship and his life over the years that we've known each other. I'm thankful for the marriage that you have given he and Tracy, that they are a, a picture of Christ in the church. And a beautiful one at that. Thankful for the home, the family that they're um, raising, that uh, they are making much of you um, at home first, and it spills over into the ministry of Westminster Presbyterian. Lord, we pray for Westminster. We just pray for your fame and your glory and your renown. We pray that you will be equipping the saints to be aromatic and bright and salty uh, as they go about their week wherever they might be in Greenville. We pray, too, that we have a real partnership and a real uh, fellowship and a, a desire for your greatness in this church. Westminster Presbyterian, as much as ever, any other Christ-preaching, Trinity-adoring church in our community, um, Lord, we just pray that you will be, uh, you'll be great in and through them. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for um, Andy Bench, just having been... Uh, just elected to a district judge position. I just pray for Andy, uh, first for his worship, trusting that Andy knows you. I pray that he is walking with you. I pray that he is uh, walking with justice himself so that he can administer and oversee justice in our context. Uh, I just pray that uh, whatever way that we can come alongside Andy and, and be a ministry to him, I pray that we can do that. But we do pray that you will use him in this context to where the gospel can be furthered uh, where justice will be administered in a way that brings you glory. Um, and lastly, Lord, before we climb into our message, I just want to corporately just tell you thank you for giving us years to walk with Billy Vaughn. What a sweet privilege to walk with a man that adores you so much and is now spending his first Sunday with you. 
uh, we enjoy the ministry that he has had to us as much as we've had a chance to minister to him. Thankful for his hearty handshake and his hug and his smile that greets nearly every person that's walked in that door for years now. I'm thankful that he is in your presence now, enjoying you this morning. Um, real substance, no shadow for him this morning. Real substance in your presence. Uh, Lord, we turn this time over to you. I pray that you will speak, you'll be clear. I pray that you'll be made much of, that the high priest will be really enjoyed this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hebrews chapter 8 is uh, 7 and 8 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we're going to be moving in a massive section of scripture. Uh, in fact, this morning I came this close to cutting the sermon in about two-third, two-third and then the last one-third. And I prayed about it and I said, no, we're just going to press on. We're just going to do what we've planned to do and we're going to set out to do it. Uh, I think we can do it. I really do. If I see y'all like asleep or something, I may just call it, you know, about two-thirds of the way through. But I don't think you're going to do that. You, you've, you're not a sleepy bunch, and you're an attentive, hungry bunch. So uh, we're going to climb right into this. Let me give you a little bit of context about Hebrews and about at least where we went last week. This is a book about better things. It's a sermon, really, from a pastor to his church. He's not with them at the time that he's writing this sermon to them. They are likely in Rome. We don't know that for absolute sure, but they're likely in Rome. We don't know where he is. But he seems to be encouraging them to stay the course. It appears that they're considering bailing on Christianity and going back to Judaism. It's a Jewish Christian church, hence the name, Hebrews. He speaks with very Jewish language to them. Every illustration he's using, every example, he's going back and using Old Testament passages and Old Testament imagery that they would have been very familiar with. So it's apparently a very Jewish church that is finding Christianity pretty hard. And they're considering bailing on it. Now there's the temptation to hear sort of that context and say, well, none of us are really considering bailing on Christianity for Judaism. So does this book really speak to us? I think it does because it's a message for us that there's nothing worth falling back on from Christ. There's nothing worth replacing continuing the journey with Christ. Period. If there was ever something redeeming, Ever, well, I shouldn't even use that word because I don't want to use it. If there was ever something that had some value, it would have been God's older system. And that's what they're considering going back to. And he's saying, you know what? That's, that's a bowl of soup compared to the birthright that you are now due because of what Christ has done. This book is a book about better things, about Christ being better in every respect. Last week, we considered two things that he is that in Christ we find a better order, the order of Melchizedek, and we find a better hope. The order of Melchizedek was a necessity because the Levites couldn't get the job done. See, the worshipers needed to be perfected. They needed to be completed using the language of last week, or they needed to be made right before God, and the Levites couldn't get that done. It was very temporary. It had no durability. So they needed a priest of a whole new order. And Christ came as a priest of the order of Melchizedek. We met Mystery Mel last week. We also found out last week that we have a better hope in Christ through which we draw near to God. Better as in this hope actually does perfect. Christ does perfect. He does complete. It's a better hope because of the quality of his work and a better hope because of the permanence and durability 
of his work. The day of atonement for God's people, the ancient day of atonement, now in Christ has become for us a lifetime of atonement. We don't have to see each other every year and have that ritual of the goats and that whole thing. We can just enjoy Christ every time we gather. There's no expiration date on his sacrifice. Jacob can now rest. That's what we considered last week. This week we're going to consider two more things. In Christ, we find a better ministry. In Christ as high priest, we find a better covenant. And I'm going to tell you right now, this second part of this sermon really snuck up on me. The treasure that's in this sermon, this passage this morning. So I'm preparing you for the last third to to hang in there. (laughs) Because the last third is the real, real sweet. I think it's all sweet, but the last third is especially sweet. I'm going to unpack this passage really in two sections. Chapter 7, verse 20, through chapter 8, verse 7, and then we'll look at the rest of chapter 8 after we sort of grab the goods out of this passage, beginning in chapter 7, verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest With an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. This is a real treat when an actual writer in the New Testament says, now here's the point. beautiful. Now the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, as I'm just reading through that, I'm thinking, Lord, have mercy. How in the world can we possibly unpack this passage? 
really, I'm sitting here thinking, I feel like a kid that just got his driver's license. Like, I know I'm legal, but I know I'm dangerous. I mean, this is scary. <laughs> scary. But I think we can do this. So what we're going to do, we're going to break it up again in two pieces. We're going to consider first is better ministry. Better ministry with four things. Is it four? Yeah, four things. Okay, so if you like one of those little outline guys or gals, this is your outline. A better ministry, we can look at four things. And then next, we're going to look at a better covenant, and we're going to look at three things. Okay? First, a better ministry. First of all, this word ministry in the Greek actually is where we get the word liturgy. When you hear the word liturgy, some of you might not be familiar with that word. Many of you likely are. When I hear the word liturgy, I immediately see big hats, robes, incense, uh, special holy water, rites, rituals, ceremonies. I see all kind of things in my mind when I hear the word liturgy. Now, we prayed for Greg Fields at the beginning of the morning. Greg Fields is a pastor of a Presbyterian church. Greg wears a robe. He wears a little collar, too, when he wears that robe. I think. He may not. I've been there before, but I didn't really pay attention. I was overwhelmed by the robe. (laughs) And he has a little program that tells you what's going on. Maybe some responsive readings. Maybe some songs that you sing in different portions. I mean, it's, it's very liturgical. And he and Westminster embrace that. They see liturgy as an instrument for teaching. Liturgy is not a bad word, okay? We have a liturgy here. It's just simpler. We, we do, believe it or not. It's simpler. We, we actually do, minus the robes. But the liturgy here, the reason I spend so much time sort of developing this imagery is because I want you to envision the imagery of the liturgy and ministry of the Levites. If you think about visiting a church that is very liturgical, that has a high uh, liturgy and has a big program and all that goes through it, all, go, all that happens that morning. You can imagine the priest just hustling around, getting it done, man. He's busy, but he's doing that one day a week. I mean, imagine doing that every single day, day in, day out, every day of the week, every month of the year, and then read the book of Leviticus and see what their job description looked like. Man, these Levites had a serious ministry and it was seriously busy we were talking in small group this last week just imagining together the sacrifices all that went into the sacrifices i mean these guys are going there and they're offering these sacrifices every single day and you got to know what to cut where you got to know how to cut it how to slice it how to dice it we like a ginsu knife like a butcher you got it going on right there making these offerings every day all day long you've got the off sacrificing you've got the offering you've got praying you've got blessing you've got cleaning up after your sacrifice and then you've got preparing for the next one and then you go through the whole thing again for the next person and then you go through the whole thing again for the next day sacrificing offering praying blessing cleaning sacrificing then for their own sins as well they have to make sacrifice for their own not just those who come to make a sacrifice they have to figure out what which kind of sacrifice is in order they have to figure out which elements of that sacrifice needed to be employed They need to figure out what to do with the fat, what to do with the entrails, what to do with the meat, what to do with birds, what to do with grains. And plus, they had about 600,000 plus people to do this with. I mean, that's, that's a very conservative estimate. 
It was likely more like a million people. I can't imagine how busy these guys must have been in their liturgy and their ministry day in, day out. Man, I just, I just happened to be in Leviticus these last few weeks reading a lot about what these guys were doing. Just It wasn't in preparation for this sermon. It's just God's plan that that's where I was. And it was interesting reading about some of the things that the collateral duties. When we were in the Marine Corps, when I was in the Marine Corps years ago, um, you, you led your troops, but then you also had collateral duties. And collateral duties were always a bummer. I mean, they were stuff that you, nobody wanted to do, but they just kind of had to split it up between everybody. Well, the Levites had collateral duties as well. They had to almost serve as like a physician determining when you were leprous and when you were clean, when you had to live outside the camp and when you could live inside the camp. They were like an ancient version of CDC, figuring out when somebody's communicable or not. Serving as like a phys- physician. On top of their duties... In the tabernacle, they're tending to the lepers. And this is something that just struck me as really funny. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. I'm not going to give you a reference. I'll, I'll tell you. It's, it's uh, Leviticus 14, but you don't need to turn there. Save your energy. When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, there seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. I mean, I'm scratching my head over that. I don't know how a house gets leprosy, but what is really even more baffling than that is we're going to call the priest to come check it out and make sense of it. I'm looking at all the priest did, and I just have to laugh. What a crazy job. He's even got to be sort of a judge to determine like if somebody's cheated on somebody else to mix up a little potion and have them drink it. These priests had a crazy ministry crazy liturgy man and then there's hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 that says this so encouraging so cool christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises christ is the priest of a better better covenant with a better ministry. Look at verse 1. I want to enjoy the contrast a little bit. How is his ministry better? Let's look beginning in chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. There are four things we're going to look at this morning, and the first thing we're going to consider about his ministry first is that he is seated. He is seated. He has a ministry and a liturgy in the throne room, in the holiest of holies, but he doesn't look like the priest of the old covenant. He doesn't look like the frantic hustle of the Levites hustling around from one altar to one bowl to one front door to one vestibule to one leper's house to one leper to one cheating wife after another. He's not hustling around like these guys. He, on the other hand, is seated. He isn't cleaning up after one sacrifice after another, only to prepare for the next. He's not slicing, dicing, burning. He's not dealing with entrails here and fat there. Lord, no, he is seated. 
We have to enjoy that just for a moment. Enjoy the posture and the difference and the contrast between the hustling Levites, like a blur, and in Christ, seated. Man, his ministry is better because he's not hustling around. And he's seated for good reason that we'll talk about later on in the morning. Secondly, the second thing we draw from this passage comes from chapter 7, verse 25. Look at it. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, one of the reasons he's not seated, or he, the, one of the reasons he's seated and not hustling about is because he's not making a bunch of new sacrifices. The sacrifice has been made. But also consider his proximity to the Father's ear. Look at this beautiful ministry that he has in contrast to the old covenant priests. He lives to make intercession. The word intercession means intervening on behalf of another. As we consider this for a moment, just consider that Christ, that, 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 that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He is the ultimate intercessor. John 17 will always I think forevermore be a treasure to me. I want to read a few excerpts to John, of John 17 for you because John 17 gives us a beautiful picture of what this intercessory ministry looks like. You want to know what Christ is doing in the high court of heaven? Listen here what he's doing on the eve of his cross. John chapter 17, listening to these passages, he's sitting there with a bunch of fishermen and a bunch of tax collectors a bunch of jokers, and he's, it says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. You want to have some sense of what Jesus is doing in the high court of heaven right now as he's seated and interceding for you and for me? At least if this is a glimpse, he's praying for oneness. He's praying for oneness, that we would be in a meaningful way part of each other's lives, interconnected, interpenetrating, interinvolved, blurry, that we would be one. Beautiful, beautiful. Continue on in verse 12. While I was with them, Father, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I'm thankful that he's praying, too, for joy. He's praying for oneness. He's interceding for you and for me. He's praying for joy. And he's praying for oneness. In verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. If we could peek into the high court of heaven and see what our high priest is doing for us now, if this gives us any clue, then he is sitting there whispering in the Father's ear, seated, praying for oneness, praying for joy, praying for protection from Satan, and praying for our sanctification 
right there, man. If John 17 is a glimpse, man, it's a beautiful glimpse. You might think, though, if you're familiar with John 17, he's just doing that for the disciples. But listen to what else he says. I do not ask for these jokers right here only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Man, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See the kind of things that Jesus is asking for as he's interceding for us? I'm thinking about the things that I'm praying for over the course of the week and how light fair that may be compared to the kind of things that he's interceding for. And I'm thankful that he's there interceding for us. What a beautiful ministry he has making intercession for us. It is baffling when you really think about it, that he is making intercession for fishermen. He is interceding here for guys who argued only hours before about who would be the greatest as they walked with greatness himself. Let the irony hit you. He's interceding for tax collectors. He's interceding for a bunch of nobodies. Man, I love that. That ministers to me. Look at Romans chapter 8. I want you to see a few passages I'm going to have you turn to this morning. And I will only, only have you turn there if I really want you to see something. So I want you to see a passage having to do with the intercessory ministry of Christ. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, we know seated, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Man, that intercessory ministry is a ministry of love. Man, just let that hit you for a minute. Just stop down and consider and be baffled about that with me. Consider first that you need a constant intercessor. Just let that hit you for a minute. Let's be real honest with ourselves and it, embrace the reality that every last one of us needs a constant intercessor. And then let's together enjoy the fact that not only do we need it, but we have it in Christ. For he lives to make intercession. He is one that won't get distracted he is one that isn't put out with you. <laughs> he is one that never gets bothered interceding for you and your needs. His is a better ministry because he lives to intercede for us. The third thing, first we've considered that he's seated. Second, we've considered what he does. He doesn't have to be standing to intercede that he intercedes for us. And now third, let's just consider for a moment what he doesn't do. 
This is beautiful in and of itself. What he doesn't do, look at chapter 7, beginning in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So when he offered up himself, he doesn't have to make any sacrifices to cover his own sin because he didn't have any. Just enjoy that for a minute. Priests in the old covenant, had to account for their own sin before they could help anybody else out with their own. Think about that for a minute. I was trying to think of some jobs or some illustrations where the first thing you do every single day is to tend to your own needs before you can help anyone else out. I thought in some ways it might be like flying on a plane. Like they give you the instructions when those oxygen masks come out. They say, don't help anybody else with theirs until you get yours on your face. That priest had to deal with his own oxygen issues before he tended to anybody else's. I thought maybe it would be like a cook. It shows up to work in the morning. In the wee hours, you know those cooks go to work early. Shows up in the wee hours, hungry. And the first thing the cook has to do when he shows up in the morning is grill himself some eggs. Make himself some biscuits before he can tend to everybody else. And that's what the priests had to do. They had to tend to their own sins before they could tend to the sins of anybody else. I can imagine to some degree what life must have been like for a priest in regards to dealing with his own sin. There's some transfer between the role of a priest and the role of an elder. It's not a direct transfer, but there's at least some transfer there where you can imagine what it must have felt like. For there are days for me. There are weeks for me at times where I feel the least qualified to lead y'all in anything. Let that hit you for a minute. It's not self-deprecating. It's not some, um, let me make myself small kind of thing. I'm being very honest with you. In fact, I had a conversation with somebody recently saying, man, we want you and your wife to come meet with us to give us some marriage counseling. And I said, dude, dude, let me tell you something. We're in marriage counseling. (laughs) I'll give you my counselor's phone number. Man, I can imagine what it feels like to show up hungry to work. Man, if you think that I'm not a worshiper right up here with you in dire need of everything that we serve up every single week, you're missing it. Because, man, the gospel sometimes that I'm preaching is sometimes the very thing that I myself am not enjoying. I can relate to the humanity of these old covenant priests. There are times where I'm encouraging you to make the most of your time and engage each other in meaningful ways. Yet I am discouraged or wrestling with feelings of futility or may just have my mind on worldly things. Because I'm made of the same stuff that those old covenant priests were made of. What a frail and feeble thing leadership of God's people is. I don't know how in the world pride and ministry can cohabitate. I don't know how they do. Because that hadn't been the effect for me. It's humbled me. I can't tell you how many times I'm encouraging men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. When I myself am wrestling with feeling like I'm not loved like I ought to be. 
like I deserve. And that's not an indictment against Christy McGraw, because y'all know Christy McGraw. I'm being very vulnerable and open about where I often live. I am a wretched man. And if my preaching and my ministry depended on how well my week had gone or how tidy my walk had been that week, I might preach occasionally, (laughs) rarely. Man, I think I, I can relate to the baggage the priest must have carried into the tabernacle every single day. Man, the heartache of his own sin as he tried to help others with with theirs. But Christ's ministry, though, man, it's oh so better. That's what fuels me, not some sort of deep well within me of my own value. What fuels me is that his ministry is oh so better because he doesn't have to account for his own sin ever. He carries no baggage when he goes into the true tent. Man, I need that. I love that. I need that high priest. The fourth thing that we can learn about his ministry comes from chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 and 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. If you look on down to verse 5, look at, just look ahead at this verse 5 also. They serve a copy. The old covenant priests, as they're serving in the tabernacle or the temple, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This is a beautiful treat that, that came... That, sort of surfaced for me in my study this week, realizing that when Moses climbed to the top of Sinai, that God opened up heaven to him. He had a glimpse into the throne room, into the holiest of holies, that he made the pattern, he made the copy from the original. It's no wonder his face shone when he came down the mountain. He's peeking in the throne room. He looked into the throne room and from that made the copy in the tabernacle and the temple. He drew from the original. God showed him, if we use some of our words last week, the antitype, the true tent, so that he might make the type in the tabernacle and then later when the temple was made. As fine as that tabernacle was, as fine as that temple was, they were only copies. But it's in the true tent that our high priest serves. He serves in the true tent. No copy. It's the real deal. Now, the second thing I wanted to consider this morning is that Jesus is the high priest who administers a better covenant. First one is that he has a better ministry. But secondly, that he has a he administers a better covenant. I wanted to define covenant this morning. <clears throat> I felt like that would be a first thing to do. We don't talk about covenant often, and I realize as I'm preaching this message this morning how often we should. It's something that's not very familiar to folks. So I found a nice definition. 
from Doug Wilson that I appreciated. He's defining what covenant is really between people. And here's how he defines it. Covenants among men are solemn bonds, sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. And those blessings and curses are a result of follow-through or lack thereof. I'm going to define it again. I want you to really have your hands around covenant. Covenants among men are solemn bonds, sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. Sometimes you read about a covenant or you see something mentioned, a covenant mentioned in, in property situations, dealing with easements, for example. You might hear about some sort of covenant relationships in business contexts. That would lean more in the direction of a contract, which is a form of or type of covenant. The most common covenant that we should all, or many of us are familiar with, probably likely all of us are familiar with, at least watching it, is the covenant of marriage. In some ways, a covenant is like a contract. It involves good faith and then outcomes, depending on follow-through or lack thereof. It seems as this church is on the bubble, as this church is dealing with suffering, this Hebrews preacher and pastor wants his people to know that Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant. They're considering going back to the old covenant. And the first reason he says it's a better covenant is because this priest is sworn by oath. Look at verse, chapter 7, verses 20 and 20 through 22. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. They were made priests just by lineage. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What occurred to me is realizing that just in the last few verses here in Hebrews, that God is swearing all over the place, at least two places. He's sworn to Abraham that he was going to have blessings, and he swore against himself, basically saying, if I don't follow through on the blessings I'm promising to you, then let my name be mud. Now, God doesn't have to swear to anybody, but he does it so that we might find strong encouragement. You may remember that passage in chapter 6. So that the heirs of Abraham's promise might find strong encouragement. And I'm thinking about this one here, this oath where God is swearing you are a priest forever, I'm finding strong encouragement there as well because of what it says next. This oath makes him a better guarantor. A guarantor of a covenant is one that makes or gives a promise or assurance or pledge typically relating to quality, durability, or performance. The first one that I've ever dealt with, the first time I've ever dealt with a guarantor was when my dad co-signed on my first loan, on a 1985 Toyota 4Runner. He was my guarantor. He's basically saying, you know what, if my son defaults on this thing, I won't default. I'm going to see it through. And as I'm reading here about guarantor, I'm seeing that this oath makes Christ a better guarantor. And I'm thinking, man, the Levites, they couldn't be guarantors of their work 
because the quality, while it was as good as it could get, the durability wasn't very good. (laughs) Think about it. Just let that hit you for a moment. If that's what a guarantor is doing, is saying this thing is durable. This contract is durable. This covenant is durable. What we're doing here is going to last. We're going to see it through. The Levitical priest couldn't do that. The Levitical priest could say to Jacob, hey, Jacob, let me tell you something. That is a beautiful little lamb you've shown up with here today. I know you fumbled at home, but man, that's a beauty. No blemishes. This is going to be a nice sacrifice. I have been, you know, I've been doing some continuing ed, Jacob, so I'm kind of up to speed on the latest and greatest in the guilt offering. So, I'm, man, I'm going to slice it right here. I'm going to dice it right here. And we're going to do this thing right, Jacob. You're going to be so pleased with this sacrifice. And then he slices it right there, and he dices it right there, and he says the right thing at right point, and the, the, the fire consumes the thing, the entrails go here, the fat goes here, you know, the head goes here, the hair goes there, everything's just right, man. Thanks, Jacob. It's a good job. We got it done today. See you tomorrow. <laughs> right? Jacob, that was amazing, but we got to do it again tomorrow. Sorry. I mean, we gave it the best that we had. I know that you gave it the best that you had, but unfortunately, it was not durable. So I'll see you tomorrow. But this guarantor is a better guarantor. This oath tells us that this covenant is so much finer because this is once and for all. He doesn't have to say, I'll see you tomorrow with a new lamb. Man, let's enjoy that together. It's a better covenant because this priest is sworn by oath, making him a better guarantor. Secondly, he's the high priest of a better covenant because of his permanence. His permanence. Look at chapter 7, beginning in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever consequently he is able to say to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them man this is a theme here in Hebrews this picture that this Hebrews preacher is wanting them to see of the permanence of this high priest look at chapter 7 if you're on that page chapter 7 verse 16 I'm beginning verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. He emphasizes again in verse 21, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest for." Ever. He emphasizes it again in verse 28. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Man, that indestructible life has got to be something that we enjoy about our high priest. He doesn't croak. He doesn't not show up for work one day because he's passed on. He got hit by a car or he's died. Man, I thought about this. In most contexts, this wouldn't be good news. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about if you had a high priest. 
Or if you can just kind of personalize it, I told you there's some transfer. If you can imagine having uh, the same pastor forever. <laughs> imagine a high priest that wouldn't die. You might think yeah, kind of nice, like you're thinking right now, oh, I wouldn't want you to die or anything. I wouldn't want you to croak. But just think about this for a minute. Imagine a priest who wouldn't die. Now personalize it. A priest who wouldn't die with quirks. A priest that also had frailties. A priest that had distempers. That's a good word. He'd get irritable. Or he'd get tired. He'd get aggravated. Think about that priest. You remember the human one that we've been talking about before, part of the, whole, the old covenant? The one that's made up of the same kind of stuff that we are. That would not be a good thing to then find out that this joker is never going to die. Because at least when one dies, his shortcomings and quirks die with him. Think about that for a minute. There's only one life that I want to follow that's indestructible, and it's the perfect life of Jesus. This high priest has no quirks. This indestructible high priest has no shortcomings. He is lovely and admirable in every way. He is not, nor will he ever let you down or disappoint. He has no distempers. He does not get irritable. He doesn't get testy. He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't grow impatient. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't make up words or any other weirdness. He's just plain perfection forever by the power of an indestructible life. Let's enjoy that for a minute. Our high priest lives. And the third thing, He's the high priest of a better covenant because of better promises. Now, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our morning. If you've gone the distance up to this point, you've gone the distance through, I would say, what is the most difficult part of the sermon. Now we finish up chapter 8. Let's look at chapter 8, beginning in verse 8 through the end of the chapter. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And this, to me, is the sweetest part of the message. I told you this is something that just surprised me. I didn't even really know it was here. This teaching of Christ as the high priest of a better covenant because his covenant is the promised and long-awaited new covenant. This passage right here, beginning in verse 8 all the way through verse 12, is one of the longest. It may be, I read something that said that it was the longest, but I haven't confirmed this. The longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. 
It comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. You don't need to turn there because it's beautifully represented right here. Accurately represented. This long section that he grabs from Jeremiah chapter 31 is talking about a new covenant and it's talking about some great promises that are to come. Now the Jeremiah context The book of Jeremiah, we don't know exactly when it was written, but Jeremiah's ministry spanned from 627 B.C. to about 580, approximately. The destruction of Jerusalem was 587 B.C. Jeremiah was prophet during this period. And Jeremiah, you may know that Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He's weeping because of the message that he's given this people. You have broken covenant with your covenant husband. You've been unfaithful with your covenant husband, and these are the consequences. But here embedded in the consequences, and here embedded in a book that's really about here's how terrible it's going to be because you've broken covenant with him, there's a beautiful promise, but there's a new covenant coming someday. And that's what this passage is. This Hebrews preacher is grabbing that passage and bringing it right here and saying, Here, Hebrew church, this is the covenant we're walking in. This is the covenant that our high priest mediates. Let's consider it just for a moment. First, I want to consider the old covenant. Exodus chapter 24. Turn there. I'd like for you to see a couple, few more passages with me. We're close. Consider the old covenant with me. In Exodus chapter 24, it's hard to find one passage that summarizes the covenant because the covenant spans over the entire engagement at Sinai. You could call the the book of Exodus and Leviticus the covenant. You could call the Ten Commandments themselves the covenant. Depends on how precisely you want to define it. But this passage here in chapter 24 does a nice job of sort of summarizing the covenant And then presenting the response of the people. And I want you to see this. Chapter 24. He said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and half of it he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and watched what the people do. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Man, some great intentions there, wouldn't you agree? Here's what I want you guys to do. I'm going to liberate you guys from Egypt. I'm going to show you mighty acts of judgment. It's going to be pretty awesome. And I'm just asking a few things of you. Sort of a longer version of don't eat from that tree. 
but how did it go? Man, they make big promises. Hey, we can do that. In fact, we're going to follow through on that. Jeremiah chapter 7, turn there. I think it'll be the last place I have you turn this morning. Jeremiah chapter 7. Another passage that sort of summarizes the gist of the covenant. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23. Written some 900 years after that old covenant was given at Sinai. We can estimate Jeremiah about 900 years later is writing this. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Instructions seem clear. The follow through seems clear. Hey God, we're going to do what you said of us. Let's see 900 years later how the report goes, the next verse. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their own evil hearts and went backward, not forward. Man, the report doesn't sound good. Things did not go well with the old covenant because as busy as they were with the sacrificing and the cleansing and the slicing and the dicing and the testing leprosy here and dealing with leprosy there and dealing with adultery here and all the things that the Levites did, the festivals, the tabernacle, the temple, all these things as awesome as they were, they did not change the heart. This is the point right here in the sermon where I want y'all to get all week long. That's morning. I was like, Lord, get up to this point. All this stuff, all this blood, all this slicing, all this dicing, all this book full of stuff in Leviticus and Exodus. It did not change the heart. In that span of 900 years between here's where the law is given at Sinai, 900 years later where Jeremiah is writing how things are going, Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. In that 900 year span, how many times do you remember, if you read the story, is the covenant represented and then the people fail yet again? It's a roller coaster. They even lose the book of the law and then they find it again. Look. Look at this book I found, full of words from Yahweh. Who's Yahweh? I don't know. I think it's God. Man, covenant breakers. The lot of them, because all that it did, it did not change the heart. But this prophecy in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, that the Hebrews preacher grabs, he says, here's the good news. This new covenant has dealt with the heart. And here's how it did it, three ways. Three things take place in this new covenant. Right here from this passage. Hebrews chapter 8. Looking first at verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That's the first thing. In contrast to the old covenant. You might remember that the old covenant, at least the Ten Commandments themselves, were written on stone tablets with the finger of God. He writes in these stone tablets Contrast now is he's not writing on stone tablets anymore. He's going to write them on the heart. But the problem is something's got to happen to the heart for that to happen. Ezekiel chapter 36 has some beautiful words. 
I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's not the only place that's shared in the book of Ezekiel. And that's pointing forward to this new covenant that we're walking in right now. This new covenant has dealt with the heart. It's taken out a heart of stone. Stone's what he wrote the old covenant on and given a heart of flesh. And now he's written his law on the heart. He's embedded it in the mind and then it's made its way through his work to the heart. And the key to making sense of that is the presence now of the Holy Spirit. He mentions it right there. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What happens here in this new covenant is that we get a new heart. We're implanted with the Holy Spirit and now obedience is possible. Let that hit you just for a minute. Some of you feel so doggone beat down all the time. Doggone beat down about this sin. Man, this thing is just laying, laying waste to me. Golly, I'm so defeated all the time. You need to read your Bibles and realize you are walking in a new covenant. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You have his law written on your heart. And you can now obey. Let that hit you just for a minute. Living like a bunch of defeated, enslaved losers man we don't have to live that way when we consider what's going on here man we consider that we've got a lot going on in this new covenant paul's writing to the corinthian church listen to what he says in second corinthians chapter three are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some do letters of recommendation to you or from you you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all and you show that you're a letter that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. This concept, is it, it might be new to you, but it's not new to our, our scriptures. Listen to what he continues to say. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Man, as I'm reading this, I'm realizing. Paul, Paul is appealing to the Corinthian church. And we are enjoying this appeal this morning. That we are walking in this new covenant now. And the Holy Spirit is that promise. He's the enabler that helps us obey. The gift of the Holy Spirit seems to be the clue to making sense of this. He's put the law in our hearts, in our minds. And he's written it on our hearts. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to see it through. We have the ability to obey because he's changed the heart. I'm going to tell you right now, we as a church need to work on this concept. This is, the, this is the marrow of the gospel. This is the marrow of the good news, a changed heart, and what that actually means. 
It needs to become part of our conversation in our homes, part of our conversation from this pulpit, and not such a rare occasion where we connect the covenant. I want it to be on my lips. I want to engage this and understand what's being said here more, what has been given us in this new covenant. Because it's fine. He put the law in our minds, and he wrote it on our hearts, and he's given us the Holy Spirit. So now obedience is possible. New covenant alone is pretty sweet if you just consider that, but that's not all of it. The second thing is he's given us full knowledge by the least and the greatest. Look back at our passage. 10b really would be the place to begin. I'll go ahead and read 10a just for the sake of continuity. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Man, what's being said here is that the knowledge of God is now a matter of personal experience. We don't have to stand outside the tabernacle hoping that Aaron will do a job for us inside the tent there. We're not outside the tent anymore. Man, now it's a personal experience with God. That wasn't available in the Old Covenant. A personal knowledge of God wasn't possible. But in this new covenant, a personal knowledge and fellowship and access to God is possessed by every single member of the covenant community. Let that hit you. Every single member of the covenant community. This new covenant's fine. It's fine. You don't have to be dependent on a priest anymore. You have access. Another passage that I'll share with you, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about this a little bit. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are now the tent. You are the tent in some ways, but in the purest sense, we the people of God are the tent. He dwells within us. The tent doesn't travel with us. We're in it. Man, what access we have to him in this new covenant. And the third thing is mercy toward iniquity and amnesia toward our sins. Mercy toward iniquity and amnesia toward our sins. In verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's beautiful finality to that promise. When he says, man, there's some better promises in this covenant, he wasn't lying. I'll remember their sins no more. We said goodbye to our oldest brother. I say brother, covenant brother. 
Yesterday morning, as a church and as friends and family, we gathered and said goodbye to Billy Vaughn. And we worshiped yesterday. For those of you who are here, man, what a blessing. <laughs> what a blessing. We worshiped together yesterday, considering the wonder of the gospel lived out in this man's life. For those of you that know Billy's story, you know what I'm talking about. Yesterday, I was riding my bike, and for nearly an hour straight, this was going over in my head, over and over and over in my head. When I consider that someone could sin so terribly and yet find forgiveness so completely, I got to enjoy that. When someone could sin so terribly and lose everything and pay a terrible price for it, but find forgiveness so completely, man, I'm going to enjoy that. Billy was a visual aid of the greatness of this new covenant. I was imagining a conversation that God might have with Billy over the years. Billy, culminating in where he is this morning. Billy, I know what you've done, and it's pretty bad. It's terrible, in fact. But you don't have to come back to me every day and offer another sacrifice for your sin. You don't have to do that, Billy. It's forgiven forever more. As far as the east is from the west, Billy, he has separated your sin from you. Oh, Billy, you don't have to come back every month. Or every year with another sacrifice. There's no need for a recurring day of atonement for you, Billy. For that day has already come once and for all. You have been forgiven forever, Billy. This sacrifice was durable. I guarantee it. It was durable. There's no expiration date. The blessings don't decay, Billy. So come here, Billy. Come join me in my presence, good and faithful servant. What a great covenant. The old covenant involved some pretty awesome promises. It did. But not ones like this. Not even close. Not even close. The sermon this morning is yet another relationship sermon I shared with you last week. I don't have a to-do list for you. I don't have, you know, then go and do this other than just enjoy him. Enjoy a better minister and a better covenant. My hope and prayer is that we as a church will connect to the goods the Hebrews preacher is sharing with a suffering church. Like Jesus prayed in John 17, I don't ask that you remove them out of the world, but I ask that you protect them from the evil one. I ask that you give them joy. I ask that you give them oneness. Man, you think about the things that he's praying for. I'm thinking about the Hebrews preacher. He's not giving them some sort of ticket out of it. He's not even giving them some sort of medication to numb the pain of what they're going through in their context. 
He's taking them to a truth that's so profound that it's got to change the way they view the world. It's got to change the way they view every single thing, both joy, triumph, and sorrow and sadness and loss, and everything in between. That's where he's taking them. Man, I need to be taken there. I need to be taken there often. Man, I hope you've enjoyed Jesus this morning. He is so great. Let's have our supper. Turn to Luke 22. I'd like for you to see Luke 22 with me. You remember where the first covenant was established? I read the passage over there in Exodus. Chapter 24, verse 8. Yes, this is what we'll do. God says, this is what I'm expecting of you. Everybody says, yes, this is what we'll do. And then there's a sacrifice and there's blood being poured in a basin. There's being blood thrown against the altar. And then there's blood being thrown on the people. You remember that? Keep that in view as you read this passage. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Like God established the old covenant with his people in chapter 24, Exodus 24. Here Christ is announcing at this meal that the old covenant is now being replaced with a new. Based on what he's about to do. What Jeremiah foretold 600-something years earlier will come to fruition right here in Jerusalem at this very Passover. As we take our supper this morning, let's enjoy that connection. Let's enjoy this covenant. Let me pray, and then we'll distribute our elements. God, we are so thankful for such a fine high priest who ministers so well it's baffling that he would intercede for us and that he would intercede so well for us asking things of you that we don't even know to ask what a great great high priest God we're thankful that he's seated just enjoying that posture that the sacrificing work is finished. We're thankful that he doesn't have to offer any more sacrifices for himself. The sacrifice has been made once and forevermore. And God, we are so thankful for this crazy, wonderful covenant that we walk in now. We're thankful for the, the guarantor sworn by oath that guarantees a durability to this covenant. That we'll see it through, not if we fail, but when we fail. 
God, I marvel, marvel that you have blessed us so much. And I marvel that we could live so disgruntled and so distracted so easily. I pray that we are stirred up by way of reminder this morning and maybe even as a way of equipping for the first time considering the beauties of this new covenant that we walk in with this law written on our hearts where we actually can obey because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, what a wonderful, wonderful blessing. God, I'm thankful that from the least to the greatest that we all have access to you. That this church is not dependent on me or any other elder or any other deacon. That a family member is not even dependent on their own shepherd. But that every member of the covenant family has access to you is a wonder. We're thankful for that access. And God, we are thankful that you have separated our sin and our transgression from us as far as the east is from the west. That whether it's Billy or whether it's Ben, we walk in forgiveness. Restored with our God. In good fellowship with our Father. What a marvel.